0: not willing, if need be, to fight for their vital interests. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem, government is the problem. Praise Calvary, and pass the ammunition, ammunition, ammunition. The Restoration Hour with Pastor Eli James. Welcome, Christian, Israel, Pastor Eli James here. This is Restoration Hour, Your Folk Radio, August 13, 2022. And today, I'm going to be doing material from Mrs. Cindy Bristow. You may recall that Michael and I did uh, another book by her about Cain. And it was called Sargon the Magnificent. And it showed that Mrs. Sidney Bristow was actually a Christian identity author. D- correctly identified Cain as the child of the devil and uh, was actually teaching Two Seed Line way back in 1923. So we're uh, going to discuss a book called The Oldest Letters by Mrs. Sidney Bristow. I have the, a print copy of it. First published 1923, second edition 1933, and this was done in London, of course, but this reprint from the Church of Jesus Christ Christian Aryan Nations. Of course, uh, it's got the PO box here, but uh, that organization no longer exists. The Jews took it over and pretty much got rid of all of the superb material that Pastor Butler had collected, uh, and includes a lot of archaeological information here as well. But first, I'm going to do a a brief article on the Hittites, because it's very important to understand the role the Hittites played. Now, originally, and the research that I've done on the Hittites suggests that they were actually a, a white tribe, that probably became very much paganized as time, time went on because Abraham got along with some of these Hittites, but not all of them. But uh, things began to degenerate among the Hittites uh, as wars increased, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm going to quote from Dr. Claude Mariatini, professor of Old Testament, the Hittites, a historical perspective. And this is posted on September 1, 2021, so it's not that old. And he says, The Hittites were a people who established a vast empire in Anatolia in the second millennium B.C. They are also mentioned as one of the inhabitants of Canaan before the people of Israel conquered the promised land in the days of Joshua. According to Deuteronomy 7.1, The original inhabitants of the land of Canaan were mightier and more numerous than Israel. These nations were the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. History of the Hittites. Although the word Hittites appears more than 50 times in the Old Testament to designate a people living in Canaan before Israel settled in the land, Historical and archaeological evidence indicate that there were at least four distinct ethnic groups known as Hittites. The first ethnic group identified as Hittites were called the Hattians, H-A-T-T-I-A-N-S, uh, other, also spelled with C H A T T I A N S. These people lived in Asia Minor in the 3rd millennium B.C., Their capital was the city of Hattusa, and they spoke a distinctive language which archaeologists called Hattian, or Proto-Hittite. The second group, known as Hittites, were the Indo-European invaders who settled in Asia Minor circa 2000 BC, and who conquered and assimilated the Hattians into their own culture. They called their kingdom Hatti, and they spoke a language called Nessian, or Hittite. The third group, known as Hittites, settled in North Syria after the Indo-European Hittites were destroyed in 1200 B.C. So since we're talking about the time period from 1446 B.C. to 1406 B.C., and that's 1406 B.C. being the invasion of Canaan land by the Israelites that this latter uh, Indo-European Hittite group uh, does not figure into our story. But here he, he confirms that the Hittites that I'm most familiar with were the ones that merged with these Hittites of, well, today it's called Asia Minor. Uh, in those days, it's also called Turkey. And uh, in those days, Anatolia, etc. So Turkey what is known today as Turkey. So the Hittites were probably, by the time the Israelites invaded Canaan land ha- had uh, settled in the north. But the uh, original Hatti were very prominent while the Egyptian empire was also prominent. And so they had various wars be- between themselves and they had treaties between themselves either uh, as well. So let's continue. So, uh, these Hittites settled in Kadesh. According to Second Samuel 24, 6, David's kingdom extended as far as Kadesh. Kadesh was a city located near the Orontes River in northwest Syria, a place that the biblical writer calls the land of the Hittites, Second Samuel 24, 6. The fourth ethnic group of people known as Hittites are the Hittites of the Old Testament, the people who lived in the land of Canaan, Okay, so if that isn't confusing enough, (laughs) uh, we see here that he identifies at least four groups of people as Hittite. So uh, I'm wondering what the etymology of the word Hittite is. Uh, But Hath was a son of Canaan, the accursed Canaan, the uh, son of Ham and uh, his mother through incest. Canaan, and Canaan fathered a lot of these Canaanite tribes, okay, who were all very, very evil. But let's continue, the Hittites of Anatolia. Until the end of the 19th century, very little was known of the Anatolian Hittites. The earliest references to the Hittites were found in Egyptian documents. One of these documents refers to the Battle of Kadesh, Uh, the Orontes between Ramses II, a pharaoh of the 19th dynasty of Egypt, and uh, Muwatali, king of the Hittites. Another reference to the Hittites appears in the Amarna letters, and we're going to be studying the Amarna letters, as presented by Mrs. Sydney Bristow in her book, The Oldest Letters in the World. That's what this book is all about. These are the oldest surviving letters. At least they were at the time she wrote this book. I'm sure there's much older correspondence has been discovered since 1923. But at the time, these were the oldest archaeological letters uh, commonly discussed. And they were correspondence between the Egyptians and the Canaanites of the various tribes. Okay, so let's continue. This letter, oh, another reference to the Hittites appears in the letters. This letter was sent from a Hittite king to Akhenaten, pharaoh of Egypt, on the occasion of his inauguration as the new king of Egypt. The letter is dated around 1380 B.C. At the beginning of the 20th century, so right after 1406 B.C. when the Israelites invaded Canaan land, so this would be a contemporary rendering uh, during the days of Joshua. At the beginning of the 20th century, archaeologists began excavating at the ancient Anatolian village of Hattusas, a site in Turkey known today as Bokaskoy. During the excavations, archaeologists discovered thousands of cuneiform tablets written in an un- unknown language. When the language was deciphered, scholars concluded that the Hittite language was not similar to the languages spoken in the ancient Near East, but that it was an Indo-European language, a language related to the Germanic, Celtic, and Slavonic group of languages. I would say much closer to Slavonic and Hungarian. And knowing a little bit of Hungarian, uh, I can say uh, that uh, Turkish is more related to Hungarian than to Celtic or any other language that I know of. In any case, so, all right, let me, I think I scrolled out too far. Okay. All right, uh, 1380 BC. Okay, very good. So, during the excavations, archaeologists discovered thousands of cuneiform tablets written in an unknown language, and then he categorizes them as an Indo European language. Next paragraph. The Hittites of Anatolia probably came from the Caucasus region. It's possible. Like I said, my research has suggested that they were originally a white tribe, but ultimately, well, of course, the Hamites were white, Canaan was white, and so that stands to reason that they were originally a white tribe, but because the peoples of the land of Canaan intermarried with the Kenites and the uh, and the giants such as Gath, Goliath being of the tribe of Gath, the Anakim and the Rephaim, we can see that their blood got tainted with the with the blood of Cain and the fallen angels. Okay, a very uh, <laughs> a very major development among all the tribes of Canaan land and the Hittites uh, would be one of the tribes that mixed up with the blood of Cain. So let's, uh, let's continue. The Hittites uh, probably came from the Caucasus region, a region located between the Black and Caspian Seas. I, I don't think so because uh, the Bible clearly says that Cain had fathered the children of Heth. They may have probably moved up there and they were probably the northernmost ultimately, the northernmost tribe of Canaan. Uh, A region located... Now, that's probably where the uh, Indo-Europeans they're talking about came from, because he just stated that these Indo-Europeans conquered the Hittites and, and merged with them. So let's continue. So a region located between the Black and Caspian Seas at the beginning of the third millennium B.C., so, apparently, they would have picked up the language of these Indo-Europeans, which I would categorize more as Hungarian, and uh, so Turkish and Hungarian. After they arrived, they mixed themselves with the ancient Haddock inhabitants of Anatolia and eventually established an empire that included Anatolia, northern Mesopotamia, and Lebanon. Okay, that, that sounds very good, but I would say their origin was through Canaan, as the Bible clearly tells us. Several events contributed to bring the demise of the Hittite kingdom in Anatolia. The most important was the appearance of invaders often identified with the Sea Peoples circa 1200 BC. Well, this is far past the uh, time period we want to talk about. Uh, well, uh, there's not much left in this uh, segment, so let me finish. Hittite documents speak of a naval battle between the Hittites and the Sea People in the burning of Hattusas, the capital of the Hittite Empire. By the way, that city, Hattusis, has been thoroughly excavated, and uh, the, the historicity of the place is absolutely certain. In addition, a severe drought produced famine throughout the kingdom, forcing the Hittite king to ask Egypt for help. The Hittites of Canaan. With the end of the Hittite Empire in Anatolia, a portion of the population moved into North Syria where they continued and preserved Hittite culture. Archaeologists call this group Neo-Hittites. The North Syria Hittites were divided into several small city-states which were eventually conquered by the Assyrians and incorporated into their vast empire during the 9th and 8th centuries B.C., just before they conquered the Israelites in 745 B.C. According to 1 Kings 10.29, Solomon exported horses and chariots to the kings of the Hittites. These Hittite kings were the Neo-Hittite rulers of Carchemish, Hamath, and Kue, Cilicia. The Hittites mentioned in the Old Testament should not be identified with the Anatolian Hittites. Old Testament Hittites are Syrian Hittites, the remnant of the Anatolian Hittites that settled in North Syria. It is also possible that the Hittites who lived in Canaan were born and raised in Canaan since the names of all the Hittites appear in the Old Testament are Semitic names. All right, so as we said, Canaan is the father of Heth and the children of Heth have been called Hittites. Now, the author is probably correct in suggesting that there are several different groups of Hittites and we may have to distinguish among them, but right now we're only concerned with the children of Heth, fathered by Cain. I'm sorry, fa- fathered by Canaan. In the table of nations found in Genesis 10, Noah's grandson Canaan was the father of Heth, the person who was considered to be the ancestor of the Hittites. The Old Testament indicates that the Hittites lived in Hebron, Genesis 23, 1 through 3, in Beersheba, Genesis 26, 33 to 34, in Bethel, Judges 1.23-26, and in Jerusalem, Ezekiel 16.3. The biblical text shows that the patriarchs and latter Israelites had many contacts with the Hittites. After Sarah died, Abraham bought the cave of Mechpala from the Hittites to bury his wife, Genesis 23.3. The Hebrew text literally reads, Sons of Heth. The cave which Abraham bought was located in Hebron, a place also known as Kiriath Arba, Genesis 23.1. Hebron is located in southern Judah. However, in Numbers 13.29, the Hittites are said to have lived in the hill country of Canaan. Esau, Isaac's son, married two Hittite women, Genesis 26.34. Solomon also married Hittite women, that's after he went insane. When Joshua was preparing to enter the land of Canaan after the death of Moses, the Lord promised Joshua that Israel's territory would include all the land of the Hittites. Quote, Your territory will be from the wilderness in Le- of Lebanon to the great Euphrates River, all the land of the Hittites and west of the Mediterranean Sea. Joshua 1.4 This land located north of Canaan appears in Assyrian documents as Hatti land, the land of the Hittites. Now, I would suggest that as the children of Heth moved north toward, the, uh, toward Anatolia, they became more and more paganized and more and more mixed with other cultures. Okay? Scholars have debated whether Hittite culture has influenced the people of Israel. Although there are scholarly discussions on the extent of legal, cultural, and religious influence on ancient Israel, scholars agree that one area in which Hittite culture can be seen in the Old Testament is in the form of the Covenant. The Hittite Empire of the Late Bronze Age, circa 1400 to 1200 BC, which is shortly after the invasion by Joshua, provides extensive materials that aid us in the study of the Covenant traditions of Israel. Now, the Amarna letters would date from this period uh, and before, slightly before, and definitely during the invasion by the Israelites, because the Amarna letters reveal that the Canaanites were having all kinds of trouble with the invading Israelites and were demanding help from Pharaoh. That's what the Amarna letters are just, uh, just about all about. The covenants that are of greatest importance are those international treaties that regulate relationships between two distinct social or political units. And yes, the Amarna letters include that kind of uh, uh, diplomatic correspondence as well. The form uh, of the covenant between God and Israel has many parallels with Hittite treaties. These include a preamble of the covenant in which the great king identifies himself, a historical prologue, in which the great king tells what he has done, the stipulations of the covenant in which the nation binds itself in accepting the demands of the covenant, the preservation of the covenant, the public reading of the covenant, the list of witnesses, and the blessings and curses of the covenant. Okay, Conclusion. The Hittites established a great empire in the second millennium BC in Anatolia. The documents and monuments they left behind reveal that their empire extended as far as Mesopotamia, and yet their history and culture were unknown until a century ago. That's right, because skeptics did not want to believe the biblical story of the Hittites as uh, atheistic and agnostic scholars uh, eat dirt. (laughs) They always wind up eating dirt because archaeology has always proven the Bible to be correct. The Hittites that appear in the Old Testament are an enigma because they are not related to the Hittites who lived in Anatolia. I suspect that they mixed together. The remnant of the Hittites who settled in Syria appears in many places in the Old Testament and in many ways influenced the history and culture of Israel. Okay, so that again, okay, that's a, I don't know if this article makes more confusion, or clarifies matters at all. But that's kind of the situation that this scholar, uh, what's his name? Uh, Oh, yeah, Claude Mariettini. Claude Mariettini. And I will include this article in the posting when we upload this show. Okay, so now we have the book. I posted the link to the book. The Oldest Letters in the World by Mrs. Sydney Bristow. And you can enlarge the type and follow along. Just click on the plus sign, and you're probably better off uh, getting the full page view of this booklet. And uh, so it's more readable. And so I think you just have to hit the plus sign once to get a more readable version here. Okay. Okay. Chapter 1, The Amarna Tablets, quote, I considered that a portion of the truth had been entrusted to me. I have given my opinion sincerely. Let them tell me where they think me wrong, Unquote Samuel Johnson. In this new interpretation of the celebrated Amarna Tablets, several distinguished authorities are quoted. Their statements are criticized and even contradicted. To justify those criticisms and contradictions, I must explain my conviction that in dealing with the Amarna Tablets, we come up against the mystery of the Hebrew race, and that because those authorities have not realized that fact, that they have not rightly interpreted the Amarna Tablets. And so her interpretation of the Amarna Tablets is that it's about the days right after the Exodus, when the Israelites invaded Canaan land, and the secular archaeologists and scholars don't realize that that's what this is, because they're not called Israelites by the Canaanites. The Canaanites did not know who the Israelites were. They referred to them as, I believe, the Habiru, <laughs> Hebrews. Okay, but the the wanderers. And the word Habiru means those who cross over as well. So, cross over from where? Well, from one river to, to from one side of the river to the other is probably where the term comes from. But that's the, uh, that's the secular interpretation of the word Hebrew. We know that the word Hebrew comes from our patriarch, Heber. Why these secular interpreters don't want to accept biblical definitions of words, I don't understand, but that's the way it is. So let's continue. To justify those criticisms and contradictions, I must explain my conviction that in dealing with the Amarna tablets, we come up against the mystery of the Hebrew race, and that because those authorities have not realized that fact, they have not rightly interpreted the Amarna tablets. If they had realized that fact, they would, of course, have used the Bible. <laughs> no, you can't do that. The obvious key to anything connected with the Hebrews as their key to the Amarna Tablets. Because I have used that key where they have not done so in my interpretation, my interpretation is different from theirs. For example, according to their interpretation of the Phoenicians, who I propose to show were Hebrews, undoubtedly the most daring and enterprising people of ancient times were Canaanites. Well, so, so the secularists state that the Phoenicians were Canaanites, we in identity say that the vast majority of the Phoenicians were in fact Israelites, but they were probably a coalition with Canaanite moneylenders <laughs> running the show. Anyway, whereas according to the Bible, the Canaanites were an inferior race. Amen. According to Noah's prophecy, they were to be servants of servants, in which they were, especially to the Egyptians. A slave race, and then later, to the Israelites. The Canaanites of the Bible could never have become the great seafaring, exploring, conquering, colonizing Phoenicians. Amen to that. Good logic. (laughs) Good logic, Mrs. Bristow. Okay, so I have to scroll down. I have to be careful in scrolling down because it might accidentally turn the page. Damn! I did turn the page. (laughs) All right, I've got to use the uh, scroll down function on the right to get to the bottom of this page. Okay, let's continue. Dr. Hall, oh, wait a minute. I think I did turn the page. I have to get back to where we were. Oh, geez. All right. I have to learn how to navigate this document. All right. The historical importance of showing that the Phoenicians were Hebrews and the greater importance of proving that upon this and several other questions the Amarna tablets not only harmonize with but also throw new light upon the Bible might in themselves justify the following somewhat controversial pages but their chief justification to some minds must be their effort to show by striking examples that have to scroll up Because the Bible records have been ignored when they have seemed to contradict monumental inscriptions, the meaning of those inscriptions has often been misunderstood. Exactly. This is why the Egyptologists refuse to consider the biblical reckoning of the timeline. They believe since the Bible is fairy tales, it can't be right. If these pages run counter to the opinions of leading Egyptologists, it is, I contend, because the Amarna tablets elucidated by the Bible throw a powerful light, hitherto unsuspected, upon Egyptian history of the period to which they belong, that of the 18th dynasty, to which are ascribed the treasures recently discovered at Thebes. The Amarna tablets, possibly the oldest and certainly some of the most authentic historical documents in the world, were discovered accidentally at Tel el-Amarna in Egypt in the year 1887. Among the ruins of the palace of Amenhotep IV, the so-called heretic king, to whom most of them were written about 3,400 years ago. Oh man, that's a long time ago. The historical information given by the Amarna tablets is involuntary and therefore unbiased. The cuneiform inscriptions upon the brick tablets are letters from Canaanitish rulers of Palestine or from kings of foreign countries. They are written simply as man to man, differing in this from all other ancient inscriptions which are written in the baffling jargon of the priests and not only ring false, but can often be proved to be false. That is the jargon of the priests. These facts make the Amarna Tablets the most valuable ancient inscriptions we possess. Probably no more trustworthy history of any period exists than that to be gathered from them of the 18th dynasty of Egypt, towards the end of which dynasty, the conquest of Palestine by the Israelites is now known to have taken place. Yes, and we've reported on the fact that the Mount Ebal was discovered, and uh, the Yahweh tablet and the cursed tablet was found thereupon and dated to exactly 1406 B.C. About 300 of the Amarna tablets have been brought to Europe. Some are in the British Museum. Many of the most important are in Berlin. The cuneiform inscriptions upon them have been translated. Now, that's before World War II, Right? before World War II, so who knows what's still in Berlin. The cuneiform inscriptions upon them have been translated into English and German and published. They are therefore open to anyone's inspection. The merest amateur may form his own conclusions from them. The result of such an inquiry is given in this paper. The great importance of the Amarna tablets has not been recognized because apparently the translators have been unwilling... Okay, it won't change. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Unwilling to admit that the Israelites are mentioned upon them and that they tell of the conquest of Palestine by Joshua. Thank you very much, Mrs. Sidney Bristow. So it's quite amazing, as we discovered in uh, Sargon the Magnificent, that this lonely female archaeologist had it all right all along, and the entire rest of the world of archaeology is just struggling in in the dust. (laughs) Digging in the dust. Okay. The translations shown with the tablets now in the British Museum give little idea of the interest of the letters. The name Haberi spelled H-A-B-E-R-I, and Khaberi, K-H-A-B-E-R-I, or A-B-R-E-R-I, is hardly seen in those translations, yet that name appears frequently in the tablets, and leading philologists certify that it stands for the Hebrews, the Israelites. See Encyclopedia Britannica, edition 2, volume 10, page 78. Another name mentioned upon the tablets is Saga, which is said to be identical with Haberi, and is proved to be so by the fact that it occurs upon the Mahistun rock in Persia, where, according to Sir Henry Rawlinson, it represents the Israelites, or the Sakai, or House of Isaac. Dr. Hall of the British Museum admits the fact that the tablets tell of the Israelites' conquest of Palestine, for he writes, quote, we may, I, we may definitely, if we accept the identification of the Hamiru as the Hebrews, say that in the Tel El Amarna letters, we have Joshua's conquest seen from the Egyptian and Canaanite point of view, unquote, from his book, Ancient History of the Near East, page 409. Very good, Mr. Hall. Okay, I have to scroll down using the bar on the right, otherwise it turns the page. Okay, Dr. Hall's dates do not agree with those given in the Bible for that event, however. He gives the years circa 1380 to 1362 for the reign of Amenhotep IV, in whose lifetime Joshua's conquest of Palestine took place. Okay, and here's another issue between the Egyptologists, other archaeologists, and the Bible. They have their own timeline for the pharaohs of Egypt, and they, they insist that their timeline is correct, and the timeline of the Bible cannot possibly be correct because it's fairy tales. So this is the level of scholarship that obtained in Mississippi Bristow's time. By now, I think just about every archaeologist in the world, except the, the atheists who hate the Bible, have, uh, have jumped on the bandwagon and realized that the Amarna letters in Amenhotep IV and Joshua were contemporaries. Let's continue. Major Conder, whose book published for the Palestine Exploration Society, I largely quote from, says, however, quote, the date of the letters is exactly that which is to be derived from the Bible, First Kings 6, one, For the Hebrew invasion, according to the Hebrew and Vulgate text, the Septuagint makes it 40 years later, and it agrees with the fact that the Egyptian conquests in Palestine made by the 18th dynasty, 1700 to 1600 BC, had been lost when the 19th dynasty acceded. So let me repeat that here. Uh, I'm not quite getting what, uh, what was lost here. The, the, according to the Hebrew and Vulgate text, and it agrees with the fact that the Egyptian conquests in Palestine made by the 18th dynasty, 1760, had been lost. Okay. Okay, so what, what, is, she, what is this guy saying? That the Egyptian conquests had been lost. Okay, subsequently lost, is probably what he should have said, when the 19th dynasty exceeded. Okay, let's continue. Although it is now generally admitted that the Amarna letters tell of Joshua's conquest of south, southern Palestine, it has not been suggested that he also conquered Phoenicia, the northwest coast of Palestine, upon which the cities of Tyre and Sidon were situated. On the contrary, the tablets are believed to show that while the Israelites were conquering southern Palestine, the cities of Phoenicia were conquered by Canaanites of the Amorite branch of that race. That's the assumption of the secular archaeologists and uh, historians. Major Condor writes, quote, Amorites conquered all Phoenicia and besieged Tyre. And he cites the Amarna tablets, page 5. Since the Amorites were Canaanites like the inhabitants of Phoenicia, whom they were conquering, Major Condor's reading of the tablets suggests that although the southern cities of Palestine were being conquered about that time by the Israelites, the Canaanites in northern Palestine were indulging in civil war. That's possible that they were indulging in civil war, but uh, Mrs. Sidney Bristow argues that Joshua and the Israelites conquered the Northern Territory as well, which the Bible says they did. That both wars took place about the same time is proved, as Major Konda remarks, by the fact that the same Egyptian officials are mentioned in both the Northern and Southern letters, which describe the war. The theory of this strange situation in Palestine has been accepted by the translators, and Bible commentators still tell us that the Israelites never conquered Tyre and Sidon and that the Phoenicians who inhabited those cities were Canaanites. Okay, so here is where a lot of secular commentators assume that the Canaanites were primary and the Israelites were secondary, and that the Canaanites worshipped Yahweh, and therefore they belittle the name of Yahweh. No, this is not the case. The Canaanites may have worshipped Yahweh, but only as a minor god. He was not considered the creator of all as worshiped by the Israelites. So there's a huge distinction between the God they worshiped by the name of Yahweh and the God that the Israelites worshiped by the name of Yahweh. Huge distinction, okay? The theory of this strange situation in Palestine has been supported by the translators, okay? And the the Bible commentators still tell us that the Israelites never conquered Tyre and Sidon and that the Phoenicians who inhabited those cities were Canaanites. And of course that is false. That by the time that the Phoenicians arrived on the scene, which was later on in the days of Hiram in the Davidic time and also Solomon's time, that these nations already were filled with Israelites. Okay, these cities were already filled with, they were paganized Israelites. They, they had developed their paganism in Tyre and Sidon, but they were nevertheless Israelites. Reading between the lines, however, I conclude from the tablets that the people called Amorites by the Canaanite rulers in their letters of to Amenhotep IV of Egypt, and who are described as conquering Phoenicia, were really Israelites who, for reasons that to be explained later, were called Amorites by the Canaanites, who were the first inhabitants of that land. Okay, so lots of confusion and terminology as you know different peoples use the same name for their, their strangers that are actually of different races. So that's what we have to understand is going on here. The Canaanites simply use the term Amorite to describe these strangers who they did not know, okay? Most of the Amarna letters were written to Amenhotep IV, the last and best known to us of the three so-called heretic kings. He has been described as, quote, the first individual in ancient history, a philosophic and artistic reformer, the first doctrinaire in history and a poet king, Hall's Ancient History, page 298. And Mrs. Bristow states that what really is the case is that the IV was the ruler of Egypt after the Egyptians lost their entire army at the, uh, during the Exodus and was a very weak king. And uh, nevertheless, he still had control over Canaan land. Let's continue. Amenhotep IV, Dusrata of Mitanni, his father-in-law, and Joshua, the leader of the Israelites, are the men about whom the Amarna tablets have much to tell, and about whom they clear away several misconceptions, while the pagan priests of Amenhotep's and of Duzrada's countries are the false witnesses whom the tablets Unmeshed. so the false priests of Egypt were the ones who were worshiping the pagan gods. But Amenhotep IV and probably his two predecessors, after Yahweh destroyed the Egyptian army, began what was called a uh, a, a new di- a new dynasty of those who believed in the single God. Okay, that, that's why because they they knew that Yahweh was a more powerful God than the God that they worshipped. All right, the big historical, have to scroll up, problems the tablets helped to solve are those of the origin of the Phoenicians and the identity of the people who formed what has been called the Great Hittite, Hittite Empire. So as we found out from the introduction, There's a lot of confusion about exactly who the Hittites were and what peoples comprise the Hittites. Uh, The author we quoted at the top of the show even suggested that uh, it was partially an Indo-Aryan empire. But that can't be the case, I think, because, let me put it this way, secular archaeologists don't realize that the Hamites were Aryans. (laughs) They were white people. They don't realize that. Okay, they believe the Jewish lie that the Israelites were Jews, hook-nosed, receding forehead, crooked-eyed, crooked-lipped Jews. And that's not the case. Once they make that assumption, then the entire demography of the area is just out of whack. And uh, the secular historians have never got this right. They still believe the same garbage today. Okay, let's continue. At the time of the Amarna tablets were written, the country now known as Palestine, including the narrow strip of coast, coastland, later known as Phoenicia, was inhabited by the Canaanites. It is called Kenahi or Kenatuna in the Amarna letters and the land of Canaan in the Bible. Okay, so Kenahi, Canaan, Kenatuna, Canaan. The Canaanite inhabitants of that land had been conquered by the early kings of the 18th Egyptian dynasty. And when the IV came to the throne, Palestine was in much the same position as we gather from the Amarna letters. That India now is under the British government. The rulers of the Canaanites, the petty kings or chiefs who fought against Joshua, were vassals of the Egyptian king, and their letters are full of appeals to him to help against their invaders, the Israelites, but they didn't know they were Israelites, and they never called them Israelites. The Egyptian king's empire was bounded in Palestine by the Jordan on the east, the Mediterranean Sea on the west, and on the north by the possessions of his father-in-law, Duzrada of Mitanni, who I hope to show owned a great empire on the north, northeast, and northwest of Palestine. And the Mitanni had to have been Aryans. Dr. Aramon writes, speaking of the Egyptian conquest of Palestine, that, quote, Egypt became the neighbor of Mitanni on the Euphrates of Assyria and of Babylon. Those three countries were, according to Dr. Hall, probably ruled over by Dusrata. And I, before reading this book, I never even heard of Dusrata. So he apparently was the king of the Mitanni. The tablets show that there was, in each of the Canaanitish cities of Palestine, according to Major Condor, a paka, who was presumably placed there to guard the Egyptian interests, much as the British resident is placed in the Indian states of today. So the paka was an Egyptian emissary. In the reign uh, of Amenhotep III, the Canaanites had plotted against their Egyptian masters which fact his son, Amenhotep IV, knew, for among his correspondence upon one of the Amarna tablets is a letter from the king of Babylon telling him how the Canaanites had tried some years before to persuade the Babylonians to join with them against Egypt. Another letter from the same king of Babylon warns Amenhotep IV against the Haberi, the Israelites, who were invading Palestine at that time. He writes, quote, Canaan, or Kinahi is your land. You are the king. I have been violently dealt with in your land. Subdue them. If you do not kill those people, they will come again, and my caravans and even your messengers, they will kill. The trade between us will be cut off, and the land's inhabitants will become hostile to you. Unquote. Translated from Winkler, the Amarna Tablets. Okay, so he's warning the king of Egypt that these Israelites will take possession of that land, take it away from the Egyptians, and he was absolutely right. The fact that the land's inhabitants, the Canaanites, were so ready to become hostile to the Egyptians is one to be remembered. It extenuates the apparent cruelty of that which, as we will see, was Amenhotep's policy. Most of the Amarna letters are from the Canaanite rulers of Palestine begging Amenhotep to protect them from the Habiri who were conquering their cities. They evidently could not understand why he was allowing the Israelites to conquer his ter- tributary cities, which they were ruling for him. Professor Winkler gives a letter in which the Canaanitish ruler writes to Amenhotep, quote, Why are you favorable to the chiefs of the Haberi? And unfavorable to the native feudal princes. The Canaanite ruler of Jerusalem, Ur Uru Salim, writes to Amenhotep Behold, I say the land of the king, my lord, is ruined. The Habiri plunder the king's land. Let the king hear. Will he not order Egyptian soldiers? And because there are no Egyptian soldiers, the king's land has rebelled to the chiefs of the tribe of the Habiri. Condor Amarna Tablets. The people who were rebelling to the Habiri may have been the Gibeonites, of whom we read in the tenth chapter of Joshua, where the king of Jerusalem calls upon other kings of Palestine to, quote, smite Gibeon, for it hath made peace with Joshua and the children of Israel, unquote. According to Major Condor, the ruler of Jerusalem's name upon the tablets is Adonazetic, as it is in the Bible. A striking excuse is made by the same king for, the failing, for failing to successfully resist the, the Habani. He writes, quote, Lo, the king will be just to be because the chiefs of the Haberi are sorcerers, unquote. <laughs> Yeah, they have Yahweh doing the sorcery for them. Probably Adonazenek had just heard of the fall of the walls of Jericho and of the miraculous dividing of the waters of the Jordan. The Aramaic word for sorcerer is Kasapi, according to Major Condor, and Kasawi, according to Professor Knutzen that's in German. This shows its relation to the Hebrew's word for sorcerer as Kashaf, Young's Analytical Concordance. Adonis Edek's sentence sentences become despairing. He says, quote, I am breaking in pieces. Let the king pluck his land from the men of blood. I say to the paka of the king, my lord, why should you tremble before the chiefs of the Haberi, and you relinquish the lands to men of blood, squandering the wealth of all the lands. They have torn away sons and daughters, and this while the king is pondering about it. Unquote. Very polite <laughs> letter of, well, he was frantic. A frantic letter, actually. But we have to understand that the kingdom of Egypt after 40 years of the Israelites wandering in the desert, has not, had not really recovered from the destruction of the Egyptian army by Yahweh. Major Condor's expression, quote, Men of Blood is his rather mystifying translation of Ameluti Saga, the people of the Saga, the Saxons, folks, which words other authorities translate Habini. Okay, the Hebrews and the Saxons are essentially the same people. Again, the ruler of Jerusalem. Well, okay, we know why he translated it thus, because there's no way he would want to admit that the Saxons were uh, the Hebrews because he believed that Jews were Hebrews, okay? I guess he never read Genesis 21-12, where it says, "In Isaac shall thy seed be called... Maybe he never read that verse. So the Ameluti saga, people of the saga, that is the Saxons, the, the Saxons of Isaac, which words other authorities translate Habiri. Again, the ruler of Jerusalem writes, "Quote: Since the Egyptian troops have gone away, quitting the lands of the king, my lord, let him be kind and let the king regard the entreaties." The king of Egypt did not regard his entreaties or those of other Canaanite rulers. The letters make that clear. They state, as Major Kanda remarks, that the Egyptian troops had been withdrawn from Palestine in the year that the Israelites came out of the desert. Very interesting. Another ruler reasons with Amenhotep. He says, Behold, thy fathers did not ring, W-R-I-N-G did not smite the land of his rulers and the gods established, unquote. The rest of his sentence is lost. He seems to have suspected the king of Egypt of conspiring against his own subject. With how much reason the letters show, <laughs> almost rebellious remonstrances seem to be wrung from the despairing rulers of the Canaanites, such as, quote, let the king rescue the land from the Habiri or send chariots to rescue the loyal. Why is then this overthrow of thy land? My destroyers exult in the face of my lord the king. He is left like the ant whose home is destroyed, Unquote. Now that's a really strong rebuke of the pharaoh. Another ruler writes, quote, Behold, the king lets slip from his land the chief city which is faithful to him, Moreover, I send for men of garrison and for horses, but you care not for us. The city is perishing. My Lord has pronounced our death. Okay, so the Canaanites are really in great despair, as these letters prove. Very suggestively, the ruler of Gabal says, quote, It is not granted to my sons to take root for me. As the prophets have perceived of old, the race of the foe will remain, unquote. So apparently we're familiar with Israelite literature, (laughs) okay? The Canaanite ruler probably refers to the promise made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that their descendants, the Israelites, should possess Palestine. The ruler may have recognized the fulfillment of that promise before his very eyes. A woman calling herself, quote, the Lady... Basmatu, thy handmaid, writes to Amenhotep, quote, At the feet of thy king, my lord, my god, my son, seven times and seven times I bow. No, O king, my lord, there has been war in the land, and the land of the king, my lord, has been wearied by rebels, by men of blood, unquote. Of course, they would perceive the Israelites that way. The lady Basmatu was evidently flying for her life. She ends quote, Am not I tired marching to the town of Albuba, and because of not resting, O king my lord. Unquote. To all these entreaties and remonstrances the king of Egypt was deaf, although the Canaanite cities of Palestine were tributary to him and must have been a source of great wealth to him, he simply left them and, and his unhappy subjects in them to their fate. Why was this? His motive deserves investigation. He and the Amarna tablets are mutually illuminating. Okay, folks, so you can see that Mrs. Sydney Bristow has done her homework, and it far exceeds the knowledge and guesswork committed by the secular archaeologists. Far exceeds their knowledge and guesswork. So kudos to Mrs. Sidney Bristow. So chapter 2 begins, uh, I see we're at the top of the hour. I'm going to take a quick break, and we'll get into chapter 2 right after this. Music by Franz Liszt. It's a five-minute piece called La Campanella, a piano piece. Here we go. Okay, that performance is in Beijing. It's nice to know that the Chinese appreciate uh, the music of Franz Liszt. So, again, it's all proof that the Anglo-Saxons and the Israelites are the blessing to the world and not the Jews, because the only appreciation of the Jews in the Far East is the fact that they're good at making money. (laughs) Right? Again, All the proof in the world that we are the Israelites that have been a blessing to the world. All right, let's get back to the Amarna letters, the oldest letters in the world. Chapter 2. What was Amenhotep's religion? Major Condor offers no explanation of Amenhotep's strange behavior in allowing the Israelites to take possession of his cities in Palestine. Dr. Hall attributes it to the king's ignorance and incapacity. Well, certainly, incapacity, that would be correct. Professor Petrie, who also publishes the Amarna Letters, thinks that his domestic affairs monopolized his attention. (laughs) Yeah, his kingdom was in total disarray, even after 40 years by Yahweh destroying his army and essentially destroying the economy as well. He says, quote, having openly broken with the traditions of his youth, Amenhotep threw all of his energies into domestic reforms and abandoned foreign politics with disastrous results. In the book, Syria and Egypt, page 22. Now, of course, this is a jumping to a conclusion. Uh, he doesn't realize that Amenhotep IV was the inheritor of the catastrophe from his forefathers of the the Israelites leaving Egypt. And uh, the the king, the pharaohs, the subsequent pharaohs, decided, okay, well, the the god that the priests worshipped wasn't strong enough to defeat Yahweh, and they were absolutely correct. But those priests still existed and wanted to restore the old religion. What Amenhotep's domestic reforms were, the time's history tells us, it says, His religious fanaticism got the better of his prudence. The cult of the god Amen was forbidden and his name erased wherever it could be reached. The pure Egyptians disappeared from the king's entourage, giving place to Asiatic personages. Thebes, consecrated to the fallen god, lost its rank of capital, and the king built a new capital at Tel El Amarna. So that's why we have the letters at this location. These were drastic reforms, surely betokening a radical change of heart. According to the Times History, The religion which Amenhotep imbibed from his mother was the worship of the sun disk. Can we believe this? Or was it the one god? The sun was always mixed up with the Egyptian religion. Son of the sun was, according to the inscriptions, one of the hereditary titles of the Egyptian kings, and the sun is sometimes connected in those inscriptions with the Egyptian god Osiris. Is it likely that because Amenhotep worshipped the sun in, in some new fashion The Egyptian priests would have hated him for just worshiping the same entity in a new fashion and have described him on the monuments over which they are known to have had control as the heretic king and as that criminal of Akhenaten. Is it likely that while practicing sun worship, only one form of idolatry, Amenhotep would have risked everything by offending the powerful priests who at that time, according to the Times history, were, quote, able to triumph over even royalty by their wealth, unquote. Okay, it's, it's very interesting that in analyzing the book of Revelation, the seven, uh, the seven kingdoms, the seven beasts, leading up to the eighth beast, Mystery Babylon, the history of Egypt, the the fact was that the priests who controlled the temples and the prostitution were making money hand over fist by running the prostitution racket in those temples and thereby creating a bank. And sometimes this bank had as much money as the pharaoh. So, there could be competition between the Pharaoh and the priests. So, th- this describes a very interesting situation, and probably this is very accurate. Several books have been written on this subject showing the power of the priests and their wealth. Well, let's continue. Of course, and this presages Babylon, where uh, the uh, fractional reserve banking system was invented. And so, the prostitution and banking have always been connected throughout history for, these, for this reason. Even the Bank of England was created with the help of prostitutes to compromise the British lords to get them to fall in line with the creation of the Bank of England. So this is why the Book of Revelation refers to her, it, as the great whore. It's the great whore because not, not only prostitutes, literal prostitutes, but political prostitutes are attached to this great bank. Let's continue. History relates that Amenhotep closed the temple of the Egyptian gods and even proscribed the word gods. It seems far more likely that the priests tried to hide from posterity what Amenhotep's religion really was. Just as they caricatured his personal appearance, representing him and his family upon the monuments as abnormal creatures, worshiping a grotesque sun which stretches down long arms to receive their offerings. Dr. Hall conjectures that Amenhotep was degenerate in, the, in appearance and ordered the Egyptian sculptors to depict him as such. He writes, quote, Quite possibly the king developed an insane admiration for his own degenerating body <laughs> and Beck, the sculptor, and the courtiers had to pander to this perverted idea of beauty. This perversion contrasts strangely with the lofty character of the king's religious and philosophical ideas. Dr. Hall's conjectures are surely disqualified by the fact that not only Amenhotep, but also Amenhotep's wife, children, and courtiers are depicted as degenerates. The love of truth with such with which Amenhotep is credited could hardly have allowed that. A beautiful head, see frontispiece, believed to be a portrait of Amenhotep, has lately been excavated at Tel El Amarna. Not only showing that he was what he was really like and how cruelly he was caricatured, but also showing what good work those priestly sculptors could produce if they chose. The Times History says, "Quote the Egyptian priests were the sculptors and painters of those days." and draftsmen, masons, and scribes. The power of handing down the record of Egypt was therefore entirely in their hands. Can we believe what they have told us? I don't think so. They were predecessors of the Pharisees. That's what it sounds like. Certainly the the banking racket. Whatever else Amenhotep's religion is said to have been, all writers agree that it was monotheistic... The worship of one God. His motto seems to have been, no king but Jesus. Oh, sorry. No, not yet. <laughs> Life in truth or living in the truth. And the following lines are ascribed to him, quote, how manifold are thy works. They are hidden from us. O thou God, whose power no other possesseth. Thou didst create the earth according to thy desires, Unquote. Yeah, it sounds like an Israelite scribe. Professor Say says of Amenhotep, quote, forsaking the worship of Amun of Thebes, of Ra of Heliopolis, of Ta of Memphis, he professed himself the devoted adorer of the solar disk. So I don't know where to get the solar disk business from, but uh, he obviously was a monotheist. That Amenhotep adored the solar disk is evidently what the Egyptian priests wanted future generations to believe. Now, of course, I think there's something else going on here, too, because in the ancient world, it's a a general assumption by archaeologists that they actually worshipped the sun itself. I think that that the Egyptians realized that the sun was simply a manifestation of the all-powerful god, and they also understood that the sun is what gives food, right? So it's not that they worshiped the disk itself, but the, they had a more sophisticated view of, of the sun than archaeologists give them credit for. So let's let's continue. Their grotesque drawings upon the monuments as well as priestly inscriptions were calculated to give that impression, but surely that evident quote connection to with Jewish monotheism or Israelite monotheism, noticed by the Egyptologists, points rather to the possibility that his religion, so hated by the priests, was the Hebrew religion. Especially since the Hebrew religion would account for as nothing else could do, not only for his allowing the Hebrews to conquer Palestine, but for everything that is known about him. So she is saying that Amenhotep IV was either an ally of the, of the Israelites or, or sympathetic to them, or could not do anything about the Israelites conquering Palestine. In any case, he seems to have adopted the Hebrew religion, at least to some extent. Professor Breston describes him as, quote, "...a brave soul, undauntedly facing the momentum of immemorial tradition." that he might disseminate ideas far beyond and above the capacity of his age to understand, unquote, at least the capacity of the priests to understand. Yet the Egyptian priests have successfully willed us to believe that it was only some slight change in the worship of the sun, which Amenhotep IV tried to establish in Egypt. Another Egyptologist writes, quote, the faith of the patriarchs is the lineal ancestor of the Christian faith. Yes, but the creed of Akhenaten is its isolated prototype. Uh, I wouldn't call it the uh, prototype. It would have been an offshoot. One might believe that Almighty God had for a moment revealed himself to Egypt and had been more clearly, though more momentarily, interpreted than ever he was in Syria or Palestine before the time of Christ. That's quite a statement, (laughs) and it's obviously wrong. One of Amenhotep's hymns so closely resembles the 104th psalm that Mr. Weigel says, It becomes necessary to ask whether both Akhenaten's hymn and this Hebrew psalm were derived from a common source, or whether Psalm 104 is derived from Pharaoh's original poem. I think the former is more likely. As I hope to prove later, the Egyptian priests' method of falsifying the history of their country was to mix up truth with fiction, just as the Jews do today. (laughs) If in Amenhotep IV's writings, therefore, we find pagan tendencies, it is not surprising. In spite of all the priestly efforts to deceive us, the inevitable conclusion seems to be that it was the Hebrew religion which he upheld. Professor Lenormant in his Ancient History of the East, writes, quote, There are curious resemblances between the external forms of Israelitish worship in the desert and those revealed by the monuments of Tel el-Amarna. Unquote. He adds that some of the sacred furniture, such as the table of showbread, described in the book of Exodus, is seen in the representations of Amenhotep's worship and says, quote, Had not the Hebrews some connection with this strange attempt and the imperfect monotheism of Amenhotep? Well, remember, the Israelites wandered in the desert for 40 years, so Amenhotep IV, and maybe his predecessors as well, had adopted some Hebrew customs. Dr. Hall writes, quote, The young reformer proclaimed that the whole pantheon of Egypt was a fiction and that only one deity existed, Unquote. This is Hebrew religion, folks, not Canaanite religion and not Egyptian religion. It is Hebrew Israelite religion. Naturally, Amenhotep was hated by the priests of Ammon, whose wealth and power depended on the rites and ceremonies connected with their gods. Yeah, and and the prostitution, which made them rich. When Amenhotep's tomb was discovered in 1907, the Times correspondent wrote, quote, The tomb had been disturbed, but not by plunderers. Some devotees of the god Ammon had entered the tomb, but merely for the purpose of blotting out the accursed name of the heretic. Unquote. Okay, so even the secular archaeologists understand that there was a feud between Amenhotep and the priests. Amenhotep's body seems to have been removed by those fanatical adherents of the god Amon and replaced by another body for the deformed skull, evidently that of an idiot, of which a photograph is shown at the British Museum. It's certainly not that of an energetic leader, a poet, and a philosopher such as Amenhotep was. Okay, he was the town clown. The body found in Amenhotep's tomb, according to Dr. Hall, shows signs of cretinism. The priestly plot has not quite hoodwinked modern science, according to Times correspondent, August 3rd, 1907, who says, Experts have discovered that the mummy found in Amenhotep's tomb is that of a younger man than Amenhotep, is believed to have been at the time of his death. The correspondent writes, quote, It will remain to be explained how another man came to be placed in a tomb bearing his, Amenhotep's name only, and containing many objects which belonged to him or had been given to him by his mother, unquote. The incongruity of the fact that the mummy found in Amenhotep's tomb wears emblems of the religion which Amenhotep had discarded has been noticed by Mr. Weigel. That fact in itself is surely enough to raise suspicions that the mummy is not that of Amenhotep. After describing one of those pagan emblems, Mr. Weigel says, quote, it is somewhat surprising that the body of Akhenaten, Amenhotep IV, Akhenaten and Amenhotep IV are the same person, who was so averse to all old customs should have this royal talisman upon it, unquote. Yeah, I think uh, Mrs. Bristow has this correctly analyzed. There was a feud between the old pagan religion run by the priests and the monotheistic religion of Amenhotep IV and his two predecessors. These suspicious circumstances combined with the priests' caricatures of Amenhotep upon the monuments and the pagan names and allusions which clash so oddly with the otherwise purely monotheistic sentiments of Amenhotep's writings pointing to their being priestly interpolations, as well as positive proofs of the priest's system of deception, which I offer later, support my hypothesis that the priests of Amun determined to disguise from posterity the true personality and religion of their hated heretic king. Two likely reasons exist for Amenhotep's adoption of the Hebrew religion. The first being that his mother, from whom he is said to have imbibed it, was a Hebrew or Aramean princess. The Amarna tablets show that Queen Ti, T-H-I spelled here, Amenhotep's mother, and remember later on, Ti-Tephi, the daughter of Zedekiah, had the same name. The fair-haired, blue-eyed queen of the Egyptian monuments came from northern Syria, which seems to have been inhabited from the first by the descendants of Shem, the ancestor of the Hebrews. Queen T was the sister of Dusrada, king of Armenia and Mitanni, about whom I shall have much to say later. His land was undoubtedly inhabited by the Hebrew race. The Hyksos, who according to Dr. Hall were Hebrews, came from Desrata's land to conquer Egypt many centuries before. Okay, that before Dusrada's time. Okay, that's interesting. So I have argued in the past that the Hyksos were not Israelites. But here, Mrs. Bristow is arguing for the possibility that they were from they were Mitanni under Desrata. That's very interesting. Abraham came from Desrata's country and Jacob's two wives came from there. Rachel may have had fair hair and blue eyes like Queen T, for they both came from Deserada's land. The Ark is believed to have rested upon the mountains of Armenia, which was part of Deserada's kingdom. In all probability, the Hebrew religion was kept alive in that land until its revival in the time of Moses. Of course, we know that the Midianites were related to Moses, and they were uh, descendants of Abraham. So these Abrahamites uh, were throughout the land. These Hebrews and Shemites were throughout the land. And they were all white people with blonde hair, blue eyes, brown hair, uh, brown eyes, etc. Only the white race has this range of hair color and eye color. And of course, the color of their skin is white unless we get a nice deep dark tan. Coming from that country, Queen T may well have influenced Amenhotep's religion, and there are strong indications that his father may have done also. But another influence existed, apparently overlooked until now, but indicated by the following facts. As we have seen, the conquest of Palestine by the Israelites took place in Amenhotep IV's reign. According to the Bible, the Israelites left Egypt about 40 years before that conquest. Amenhotep's father, Amenhotep III, who is said to have lived about 50 years, must therefore have been alive at the time of the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt. His father, Thutmose IV, was also alive at that time. He or his father must have been the pharaoh of the exodus. I would suspect that it was his father. One or both those kings must have witnessed the miracles performed by Moses in the name of the God of the Hebrews. Those awe-inspiring events explained as nothing else can do the evidence found upon monuments that both Amenhotep's father and grandfather had tried to change the religion of Egypt. According to the Times history, the last kings of the 18th dynasty were distinguished by the name of heretic kings. Okay, so we have three. We have a dynasty of three heretic kings. So let's see if I can get these straight. Uh, Tutmos the fourth. Amenhotep the and Amenhotep the also known as Akhenaten. Mr. Weigall writes, quote, "In the reign of Tutmosis the we reach a period of history in which certain religious movements are to be observed, which become more apparent in the time of his son Amenhotep the and his grandson Akhenaten, Amenhotep the And Tutmosis the did not altogether approve of the political character." Of the Amman priesthood. That it was religion and not politics which caused Tutmos IV to disapprove of the priests of Amman is my conviction. If the religious change began in his reign, he was, I maintain, either the Pharaoh of the Exodus or that monarch's son. I would uh, certainly agree with that analysis. Only the signs and wonders recorded in the book of Exodus, which culminated in the catastrophe in the Red Sea, can adequately account for the fact that the last kings of the 18th dynasty turned away from the priests of Amman, and that Amenhotep IV finally revolted openly against them and their feudal practices. <laughs> Futile and feudal <laughs> have a common origin, I think. An Egyptian inscription exists in which Amenhotep is made to say, speaking of his father and grandfather by their personal names, Nebara and Menkapura, quote, the words of the priests, more evil are they than those things which King Nebmara heard, more evil are they than those things which Menkapura heard, unquote. Yes, and these were the banker priests. The strongest proof that Amenhotep's religion was that of the Hebrews is the effect it had upon his actions. The God of the Hebrews had forbidden any other gods. Amenhotep tried to abolish the idolatry of Egypt, closed the temples, turned his back upon the powerful priests, and retired to tell El Amarna where he built a new capital city in in which to institute the worship of one God. The God of the Hebrews had promised that Palestine should belong to the Israelites. Amenhotep withdrew his troops and allowed the Israelites to conquer Palestine. Very, very interesting. The God of the Hebrews had announced through Noah that the Canaanites were to be servants unto Shem's descendants. Yes, he did. Amenhotep allowed the Israelites who were Shem's descendants to make slaves of the Canaanites and to draw from them the revenues which had once been his. Fascinating, fascinating, fascinating. Yeah, sounds like Moses was there. Yes, <laughs> yes, I mean, he, Moses was definitely there. Okay, Moses, uh, I think, was uh, another common name in those times, but I'm not sure if it equates to Moses. Okay, chapter 3. The Problem of the Amorites According to Major Condor's and other writers' interpretations of the Amarno tablets, Amenhotep's behavior was extraordinarily inconsistent, for according to them, while he allowed the Israelites to conquer southern Palestine, he allowed Amorites to conquer northern Palestine, that is to say Phoenicia. Major Condor writes, The Amorites conquered all Phoenicia and besieged Tyre. The Amorites, according to the tenth chapter of Genesis, were one branch of the Canaanites. They were among the people whom the Israelites had been commanded to drive out or destroy. Amenhotep's religion and consequent sympathy with the Israelites can well explain his allowing Joshua to conquer Palestine, but that he should have allowed the Canaanite subjects to destroy his important seaport cities in Phoenicia can have no explanation. The Amorites, although the tablets are supposed to show them attacking Tyre, were, according to the Bible, fighting under the king of Tyre against Joshua's army, Joshua 9, verse 3. At first sight, there seems to be good grounds for Major Condor's theory, although it suggests a most improbable situation, namely that the Canaanites, regardless of their common danger from the invading Israelites, were fighting among themselves, for the following sentence prove that people called Amorites or the sons of Abdesherah and who are said to have come from the land of the Amorites were conquering Phoenicia. Ah, so we have the same situation as Ruth the Moabitess. Okay, so we're, they're being called people who came from the land of the Amorites. Well, that's the area that the Israelites went through in conquering Palestine. So that makes perfect sense. Abdesherah was, the letters show, quote, the Amorite leader, quote, unquote, Amorite leader, as Major Condor calls him. Okay, so here we have the confusion between a, a racial term and a territorial term. The same situation we find in the book of Ruth and also Moses is called an Egyptian in a couple of places because he lived in the land of Egypt. So, let's continue. Rabadi, the ruler of a Phoenician city, writes to Amenhotep, quote, All who are in the land of the Amorites have gathered and I am to be attacked, unquote. So, it, uh, he doesn't say they are Amorites. It says says they are in the land of the Amorites. And this is Condor's translation. He writes again, quote, Who is Abdesherah? a slave, a dog, but send reinforcements. And, but Abdesherah has conquered beyond the land of the Amorites. Also since the time of your father, the city of Sidon has submitted to the occupation by his allies. The lands are for the men of blood, the Haberi. So now there is none who is a friend to me. Let the king regard the message of his servant, unquote. And of course, none of the Canaanite tribal leaders were aware of the fact that the Egyptians were simply de- militarily destroyed and could not really come to their assistance anyhow. Of course, the Egyptians would not uh, want the, uh, the inhabitants of Palestine to know this, right? Okay. The Canaanite rulers seemed puzzled by the state of affairs. One of them writes to Amenhotep, quote, the sons of Abdesherah, the slave dog, have pretended that the cities of the government of the king are given to them. Our cities, yeah, so the, who, would, who would assume that these cities were given to them but the Israelites. Our cities. Will you not fortify your city? I am sincere, but the covenant is mocked and no soldiers are heard of, unquote. So again we see that if you're a- analyzing the amount of letters according to their biblical connection, you can get this right away. But if you're one of these secular archaeologists and secular Egyptologists who think the Jews are Israelites, you'll never get it. The Canaanitish rulers were perhaps not more puzzled than the translators have been. <laughs> Professor Petrie remarks that at that time, quote, the politics were complex. Indeed, very complex. The Amarna tablets throw light upon this puzzling situation, although a bewildering light it seems upon the surface to be, so much so that the translators may have been blinded by it. The astonishing fact disclosed by the tablets being that the people called Amorites who were conquering Phoenicia were being helped by the Habiri. No, that's not likely, right? (laughs) They were the Habiri as the Habiri are admitted to be the Israelites when attacking other parts of Palestine, they must have been Israelites when attacking Phoenicia as well. Makes sense? In this case, it looks as if the Israelites, although they were attacking the Canaanites of some parts of Palestine, had made an alliance with the Canaanites who were attacking Phoenicia. Well, no, that, that wasn't possible. So that's just what the translators and archaeologists have assumed. Okay. In this case, it looks as if the Israelites... are sorry. No wonder Professor Petrie says that the politics in Palestine were complex at that time. The Amarna tablets leave no doubt about it. The Habiri and people called Amorites Amuri were both attacking Phoenicia. Okay, the people who came from the land of the Amorites, as the one leader said. The following sentences prove this. A Phoenician ruler writes, quote, The Haberi take possession of all lands. All lands fall away to the Haberi. Professor Petrie gives another letter from the ruler of Gabal, who writes, Abdesherah has collected the Haberi against Shigata and Ambi. Your fortress is now in the power of the Haberi. Unquote. Now, now who is this Abdesherah? Abdeshera must be Joshua. I wonder if she equates Abdeshera with Joshua. We have a half an hour to find out. This strange alliance of Amorites and Haberi, which I hope to explain later, helps to show at least why Amenhotep allowed the so-called Amorites to conquer Phoenicia while he allowed the Haberi to conquer the rest of Palestine. Well, he allowed the Heberi to conquer the rest of Palestine. If, as this letter shows, the Amorites of the Tablets and the Heberi were allies, Amenhotep could not well have allowed the Heberi to conquer Phoenicia without allowing the Amorites to do so too. Yeah, that would not make sense. Failing to solve the problem of this unnatural alliance, Major Condor and Professor Petrie apparently tried to explain away the Heberi who were helping the Amorites to conquer Phoenicia. Unluckily for the success of their explanations, they differ. Professor Petrie says that the Haberi mentioned upon the tablets cannot have been the Israelites, although he says some people believe they were, because according to all accounts, the Israelites attacked in the south of Palestine, and the Haberi of the tablets attacked the north. Okay, well, they're the same people. (laughs) Haberi is like the universal secular word for Hebrew. Major Condor says the exact opposite, namely that the Haberi did not attack in the north of Palestine, that they only attacked in the south. He writes, quote, the Haberi are never mentioned except in the south, near Jerusalem. Their opinions disagree again about the word Haberi. Professor Petrie says that the word cannot mean Hebrews, that it must mean confederates. He gives no linguistic reason for this opinion which is shared by Professor Sace. Major Condor says, on the contrary, that on linguistic grounds the word Haberi cannot mean Confederates, as Professor Petrie tells us it does. As we have seen, philologists recognize the identity of the words Haberi and Hebrews. Amen. The translators not only unintentionally contradict one another, Each of them contradicts himself. After saying that the Haberi attacked in the north, Professor Petrie says that they are only mentioned in the letters from the king of Jerusalem, a city in the south of Palestine. At the same time, he publishes letters from several kings of northern cities, all mentioning the Haberi. Major Condor says that the Haberi are sometimes called the people of the blood or tribes of the Haberi, because of which, apparently, he changes the words Amaluti Saga, which are rendered Haberi by other translators, into the expression men of blood, and we know it really means the Saxons, in the Phoenician letters. Thus, it almost seems trying to get rid of the problem of the Haberi-Armorite alliance. Although neither Professor Petrie nor Major Condor deals successfully with that problem, it can, I firmly believe, be successfully dealt with, although the word Haberi cannot be altered The word Amorite can be altered, or the word the the northern Canaanites simply applied the word Amorite to the Heberi, not knowing who they were. It's quite possible that the northern Canaanites simply referred used the name Amorite as the land from which the Hebrews came into Canaan land. That's that's the obvious conclusion. All right, chapter 4. The key to the problem. As we have seen, the Canaanites themselves were puzzled. (laughs) The personality of Abdesherah, the Amorite leader, seems to have mystified them. The ruler of a Phoenician city writes to Amenhotep, Who is this Abdesherah? A slave, a dog, and shall the king's land be smitten by him? It's got to be Joshua, folks. It's got to be Joshua. So far as the Amarna tablets go, Abdeshera remains a mystery, seemingly shown by some letters to be a Hebrew and by others an Amorite. To solve the mystery of him and his Hebrew allies, we must try to find out where he came from. To that, Major Condor, oh, okay, well, maybe he is, uh, oh, I can't remember the name, Dr- 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 Drusava the name of the king of the Mitanni. He might have been an ally of the Israelites, heretofore unknown. Let's continue. To solve the mystery of him and his Hebrew allies, we must try to find out where he came from. To that, Major Condor gives us an involuntary clue by publishing sentences from a Phoenician ruler who writes, quote, All who are in the land of the Amorites have gathered I am to be attacked. Okay, so where did the Israelites gather? <laughs> quote, mightily fighting the sons of Abdesherah have striven in the land of the Amorites, unquote. And you know not the land of the Amorites. You have been brought low before the land of the Amorites. Again, speaking of certain Egyptian officials, he says, quote, Lo, may the land of the Amorites become their conquest, unquote. From these sentences we gather that there was some country called the land of the Amorites which was not tributary to the king of Egypt, as all Palestine is known to have been, for he is told that he knew not the land of the Amorites and that he had been brought low before it. Its inhabitants must have been powerful and warlike to bring the king of Egypt low. Professor Petrie and Major Condor have evidently seen that such a country existed outside Palestine. Both have placed it on their maps somewhere between Amenhotep's possessions in northern Palestine and those of his uncle and father-in-law in in Syria. It seems unlikely that a powerful warlike people could have existed between those two kingdoms. Naturally, the Amarna tablets do not explain where the land of the Amorites was. The king of Egypt required no explanation. (laughs) Our only hope of learning more about it is by referring to the Bible, those Hebrew records, which the Times history says are not paid much attention to nowadays, unquote. That's still true. The Bible tells us where the land of the Amorites was and why the Israelites came into Palestine from there. Numbers 21, verse 21. When the children of Israel, the Haberi of the tablets, led by Moses, came out of the desert, they found that to reach the Promised Land, they had to pass through the land of the Amorites. Quote, And Israel sent messengers unto Sihon, king of the Amorites, saying, Let me pass through thy land. We will not drink of the waters of the well. We will go along by the king's highway until we be past thy border. And Sihon would not suffer Israel to pass through his border. But Sion gathered all his people together and went out against Israel into the wilderness and fought against Israel. And Israel smote him with the sword and possessed his land. And Israel dwelt in all the cities of the Amorites. Thus Israel dwelt in the land of the Amorites. But only for a short time. Palestine was their goal, as they all do. The three tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, however, asked Moses to allow them to settle in the land of the Amorites. Numbers 32, 6. Quote, and Moses said, Shall your brethren go to war, and shall ye sit here? They answered him, We will build up sheepfolds for our cattle and cities for our little ones, but we ourselves will go armed before the children of Israel until we have brought them into their place. Unquote. Moses agreed to this, and in the fourth chapter of Joshua we read how the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the children of Israel as Moses spoke unto them, It was from the land of the Amorites, therefore, that according to the Bible, the Israelites crossed the Jordan to conquer Palestine. Because of which the Canaanites living on the seacoast of Palestine seem to have sometimes called them the men from the land of the Amorites or the Amorites. So it's just, The name that they use, okay? Uh, The Germans call themselves Deutsch. We call them Germans. Uh, Most of the other languages of Europe call them Alaman. So all these different languages have different names for the same people. And of course, they are Anglo-Saxon Israelites. Their doing this agrees with other historical facts. The strange tribes introduced into Samaria by the Assyrian king in the 8th century before Christ to replace the Israelites whom he had led into captivity in Assyria were afterwards called Samaritans. 2 Kings 1724 The exiled Israelites themselves are now known to have been called Medes, Persians, and Manda when later on they took possession of lands which had belonged to the peoples of those names. Marchant, Monumental facts. The Slavonic tribes, who, according to the German professor Sievers, took possession of the lands left vacant by the Saxons who came to Britain, took the name of Saxon. And the British who settled in America are called Americans, as were the Indians who inhabited the country before them. In the same way, the Israelites who conquered Phoenicia were called Amorites by the Canaanites who inhabited that land. The very fact that they were fighting with people called Heberi and Sagas against against the Canaanites is enough to prove that those quote-unquote Amorites mentioned upon the tablets were, in fact, Israelites. While, therefore, Major Condor tells us that the Amorites conquered all Phoenicia and besieged Tyre, I maintain that it was the Israelites who conquered Phoenicia and besieged Tyre, To satisfy ourselves, however, that they conquered all Phoenicia and became the wonderful people known as the Phoenicians, we must prove that they not only besieged Tyre, but took it and also took Sidon. Unless they had taken those two Canaanite strongholds, they could never have settled in Phoenicia at all. Very good. You're making too much sense, Mrs. Sidney Bristow. (laughs) Okay. Chapter 5. So, who is this Abdesera? My curiosity runs amok. Sidon conquered by Hebrews. The Cambridge Bible commentary says that after Joshua's death, the Israelites grew slothful and never conquered Tyre and Sidon. That's what the Cambridge Bible commentary says. But what about Joshua himself? Surely, if it was anybody's business to see that the Israelites conquered those cities, it was Joshua's. It had been decreed to Moses, Numbers uh, 34, that the western border of the Israelites' possessions in Palestine was to be the Great or Mediterranean Sea. Would not Joshua, in order to fulfill that decree, have made every effort to conquer the Phoenician cities, which lay upon the coast of that sea? According to the book of Joshua, the cities of Sidon and Tyre were allotted to the tribe of Asher by Joshua before his death. Had Joshua left those cities in the hands of the Canaanites, his allotment of them to the tribe of Asher would indeed have been a mockery. Both the authorized and revised versions of the Bible give the impression that the Israelites never conquered Tyre and Sidon. But if the translators of those versions of the Bible had had the Amarna tablets to refer to, they might not have done so. It was not until after the revised version of the Bible was published that the Amarna tablets were discovered. In the 11th chapter of the book of Joshua, we read that the Israelites chased the army of the northern Canaanites up to the city of Sidon, and there utterly destroyed it. That army represented the land of the Canaanites. Dean Stanley sums up the situation in his lectures by saying... Quote, As the British chiefs were driven to the land's end of England before the advance of the Saxons, so at this land's end of Palestine were gathered for this last struggle, unquote, meaning the remaining Canaanites. According to both versions of the Bible, Joshua turned back after destroying the Canaanites before Sidon and burnt an inland city called Hazor. As nothing is said about Joshua attacking Sidon, Bible commentators have inferred that he did not conquer that city and that it never belonged to the Israelites. But can we believe that the Israelites, flushed with their victory over the Canaanites, could have tamely turned away from that Canaanite stronghold which would always have threatened their position in Palestine? Joshua's tactics have been compared with those of the greatest modern commanders, which of those commanders would have acted as Joshua is believed to have done with regard to Tyre and Sidon. The Amarna Tablets vindicate Joshua's conduct as regards Sidon by showing that that city was conquered by the Hebrews. Zibrida, ruler of Sidon, writes to Amenhotep, quote, Behold, all my cities which the king has given into my hands have fallen into the hands of the Hebrews, Unquote. This sentence is given by Dr. Kelly Shane, C-H-E-Y-N-E, Encyclopedia Britannica, Edition two volume five page one forty one that Sidon was the last of Zimrida's cities to fall is shown by a letter published by Professor Petrie as follows Zimrida to king Zimrida is prince of Zeduna, Sidon which is safe but his other cities have fallen to the Khabari and he asks for troops and succor Ribadi, the ruler of Gibal, tells Amenhotep how Zimrida of Sidon had deserted to the Amorites, whose leader, as we have seen, was Abdesherah. The ruler writes that if he had agreed with Abdesherah, as Zimrida of Sidon had done, he would have been safe. Professor Petrie remarks that this letter shows that Sidon was lost as its ruler Zimrida had gone over to the enemy. Before Zidon was taken, Zimrida evidently made some resistance. He writes to Amenhotep, Lo, the city of Sidon has gathered. I am gathering, O king, all who are faithful to my hands. No, O king, mighty has been the battle against me. The greatest of the fortresses Desert to the enemy, which has gone well for the men of blood, the habiru, and they are gaining them from my hands, and my destruction is before me. So that the king of Zidon says, it's, it's over. <laughs> Another letter from Tyre tells of some evidently important person flying from Sidon that too, as it is expressed, quote, escape from slavery. This agrees with the Bible, which tells us that the surviving Canaanites were made to do task work by the Israelites. The fugitive's name is given given as Zimridi. He is thought to have been the ruler of Zimrida himself. He is said to have fled to Irib, which Major Condor thinks was in the Lebanon. That some of the Canaanites escaped to the mountains agrees with the 13th chapter of Joshua, where, quote, Sidonians are said to be still existing in what is called the hill country shortly after or shortly before Joshua's death. The ruler of Gebal makes it quite clear that Sidon was taken by the Hebrews. He writes to Amenhotep, quote, the city of Sidon and the city of Beirut. The sons of Abdesherah have silenced. They fought for the king but the city of Beirut and the city of Sidon are not the kings. We sent Apaka to He did not desert his duty to you, but she has rebelled to your face, for it was permitted by the free men. The men of blood have seized the city. Now, was this Paka a woman? Because we have asserted in the past that Rahab was at least resident in the uh, embassy of Egypt. And, of course, uh, we have argued that she was a daughter of Ephraim. So that would uh, that would certainly make sense since uh, Amenhotep IV was sympathetic to the Israelites and worshiped the same God that he would have installed an Israelite woman, namely Rahab, to take charge of that embassy. Or she was either that or she was the wife of the Paka. The city who's free or working for him, The city whose freemen were on the side of the enemy was, as Major Conner remarks, Sidon. The ruler of Gebal continues in his letter, quote, Abdesherah has conquered beyond the land of the Amorites. The city of Sidon has submitted to the occupation of his allies. The lands are are for the Haberi, so now there's none who is a friend to me, unquote. Abdesherah was quite probably the Canaanites' name for Joshua. Who Abdesherah's allies were is an interesting question. They may have been a contingent of the Israelites from the land of the Amorites who instead of crossing the Jordan with Joshua's army had attacked Phoenicia from the north. Okay. That would be those three tribes, Reuben, Gan, and the half tribe of Manasseh. The land of Bashan, which the Israelites had conquered, Joshua 13:12 would have made a strong military base for it. it. was almost opposite-sided on the east side of the River Jordan. On the other hand, they may even more probably have been the Hebrew or Aramean army of Dusrata, Amenhotep's uncle and father-in-law, the king of the Mitanni in northern Syria. The tablets show that he was fighting in alliance with the Israelites against the Canaanites. Very interesting. In one letter, Ribadi says that Abdesherah's sons or followers were, quote, creatures of the king of Mitanni. <laughs> okay. In another letter, he says that one of Abdesherah's sons was the king of Mitanni. Again, Ribadi writes as if Abdesherah himself was the king of Mitanni. He says, quote, Who is Abdesherah? The king of the Mitanni and Kassi, that is the Kassites, is he who takes the king's lands for himself, unquote. So we have three Shemitic Hebrew kingdoms being represented here. In another letter, Rebadi undoubtedly gives the impression that Abdesherah was Joshua. He writes to Amenhotep, quote, Who is Abdesherah? The slave, the dog, who set him up? Why, the mighty saga man set him up. Yeah, the Saxon man set him up. Drusada, very good. Man, this is absolutely clear, folks. Mrs. Sidney Bristow has this totally figured out. Again, all by herself against all the, the the academics who don't want to believe in the Bible. And if they do, they jump to conclusions without referencing the Bible and what the uh, Amarna letters clearly say, all right? But, you know, you have to have the right perspective to understand what's going on. And she had it. She was Christian identity. As the expression saga man also meant Hebrew man, and the mighty saga man sounds like Moses, and the man set up by Moses was, of course, Joshua. These conflicting statements show that to to Rabadi, Abdushar was a mystery, and a mystery as experts admit he remains his identity is comparatively unimportant, but that the name Abdeshera, Abdiasirta, as Winkler gives the name, represented the leader of the Hebrews to the minds of the Canaanites of Phoenicia, is certain. That the Hebrews attacked from two different directions is shown by another letter. A ruler writes, quote, Part of the Haberi are from the land of Amuzi and part from the land of the Hubi. Perhaps it was Duzran, king of the Mitanni, who handed over Sidon to Joshua after the battle in front of that city in which Joshua destroyed the Canaanitish army. However that may be, and whoever the Hebrews were who took Sidon, the only thing that really matters is they took it from the Canaanites, whom they made slaves. Very good. Okay, so just a couple more sentences here. And we'll conclude today's show, which explains the words, Judges uh, 131, quote, Asher drave not out the inhabitants of Sidon, but the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out, unquote. Could there have been any question of the Asherites driving out the inhabitants of Sidon unless the Israelites had conquered the city? So, it leaves unclear whether the Asherites by themselves did not drive out the Canaanites, or whether the Asherites, in conjunction with the other tribes, and of course, Druzada, or Dusrada, rather, of Mitanni, and the Saga, who are both three Hebrew Shemitic tribes, would have done so. So, it is very clear, ladies and gentlemen, that the Amarna letters are telling us how the Israelites invaded Canaan land, took over the land, and that from the from all appearances, Amenhotep hotep IV either supported the Israelites in this endeavor or simply kept a hands-off attitude. It's hard to say. All that these Amarna letters reveal is that he never came to the aid of the Canaanites. That's all that they reveal. So you can speculate as. But the other, on the other hand, he appears to have become a worshiper of Yahweh, the one God, and would have. But even even if he did, his army, the Egyptian army, had been destroyed forty years before, and would have taken quite some time to build up. And why would he even waste his military endeavors? on this situation when he apparently, from the quotations we've read so far, he was aware that the Israelites would take over the land of Canaan and that what was happening under Joshua was evident. So folks, here we go again. The proof that the Bible is a historical book, that all historical information has always, and archaeological information, has always proven that the Bible is true And every critic is a liar. That includes white nationalists who still believe that the Jews are Israelites and the Bible is a Jewish book. Blah, blah, blah. These people need to wake up. So here we are, still trying to wake them up in the year 2022. And they are still resisting because they believe the Jewish lie that the Jews are Israel. You know, and, and... When I gave a speech in Chicago with a a bunch of white nationalists and national socialists in attendance, I told them, you guys know that the Jews are liars. Why do you believe them when they claim to be Israel? Think, and I pointed my finger to my head. Think, you stupid. I didn't use the word stupid, (laughs) but that's what I was thinking. If you, if you know they're liars, why do you accept that lie? And apparently a lot of the people in the audience came over to my point of view. And Unfortunately, I don't have a record of that speech. <laughs> so, because I didn't, I didn't write it down beforehand. And that, and that was the speech I was... <laughs> I was giving my speech when some Antifa jerk... Uh, popped a smoke bomb in the men's room, causing the whole restaurant to be filled with smoke. And then the uh, fire department and police came and ended our meeting. So that was the rude way in which the meeting ended. So, folks, here we are again, having to prove that the Bible is true and every skeptic a liar. Over and over again, all of history and the Bible prove that we are Israel, the Jews are imposters, and if you don't have that information, if you don't have that understanding, you will never understand the Bible, you will never understand ancient history, and you will be clueless from here on out. Christian identity rules, folks. Praise Yahweh, pass the ammunition. See you all next time. Bye-bye. people will never remain free if they are not willing, if need be, to fight for their vital interests. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. and pass Restoration Hour with Pastor Eli James.